0: you were such a good boy today to do what I want you to do, or such a good girl today to uh, uh, help me out with the the laundry or ironing or whatever, uh, or uh, mowing the yard, girls can do that, Um, (laughs) that you got a reward. Maybe it was even an allowance, which, by the way, is a reward that isn't deserved, but some parents give their younger children allowances. But we're supposed to do what our parents tell us to do, right? you are, but it's so very nice, is it not, children, when you get something uh, that you don't deserve, but on top of just uh, a thank you, you get something uh, that is a blessing from your mom and your dad. Uh, Good food, or maybe a a few dollars, uh, um, and you get rewarded for doing something you're supposed to do. Well, this passage, children, speaks of among other things, God and His the fact that he gives rewards that we don't deserve for being obedient, but that are graciously given to us by God, He and all rewards that we get from God are always graciously given. They're never earned. We don't earn, we can't earn um, blessings from God. Uh, we're supposed to do what we're supposed to do, Regardless of whether we get uh, rewards or not, but God does give rewards. He gives, He blesses His people when they uh, do what He uh, has commanded them to do, and that they are required to do. And this passage is there. Are many passages like this, but this is one of them that makes this point that God is willing to bless and reward and uh, and encourage His people his covenant people, when they do what he has instructed them to do in the way of obedience. So you're going to hear that in this sermon. Uh, it's actually the, the third point of the sermon. Uh, which I will get to those points here in just a minute. But let me just remind you of what's happened, what's recently in, in terms of uh, the uh, amongst the uh, kings of Israel. Uh, King Ahaziah... We looked at him a few weeks back. He, uh, after he died, you recall, he died. He was an evil king uh, of Judah, and he died because uh, he was killed by a man named Jehu, uh, who was in the army of the northern king, who was Ahaziah's uncle, uh, uh, Jehoram. No, Joram. Whatever. Uh, anyway, he went to visit him after he'd been wounded in battle, and. Jehu came and killed both Joram and Ahaziah, who was the king of the north and the king of the south. Uh, Well, after King Ahaziah died, shortly after that, his ruthless uh, and wicked mother, Athaliah, who was the daughter of Jezebel and Ahab of the north, uh, she now is related, uh, 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 has been incorporated into the southern kingdom by way of marriage. Anyway, Athaliah, after the death of her son Ahaz, sees his death as a, uh, rather than a grievous thing, a wonderful opportunity. Uh, And that opportunity that she saw was an opportunity to increase the very considerable power and influence that she already possessed as her dead son's chief advisor. She saw an opportunity to gain even more power. Uh, formalized, if you will, her power that she had uh, informally as Ahaziah's advisor or chief advisor, and what that opportunity was to take the throne of Israel uh, of Judah rather as her own throne. She wanted to rule over Judah herself rather than let any of the legitimate heirs to the throne. Um, take over that throne, inherit that throne. The the legitimate heirs would be the sons of her dead son, Ahaziah, which would be her grandchildren, grandsons. She didn't want any of them taking the reins of power. She wanted those reins herself. So, lovely woman that she is, sets about trying to murder every single one of her grandsons. She murders a number of them, and there were a number of them. We don't know exactly how many, but there were a number of them. And she tries to murder every single one of her own grandsons. Once she believes that she has successfully exterminated all of Ahaziah's potential heirs to his throne, she herself does uh, take the throne uh, in the palace, the royal palace in Jerusalem, and assumes power. But, there is one small problem that Uh, Of which dear grandma was unaware, and that was that she had overlooked one of her many grandsons uh, in her murderous rampage, and that was the little infant boy, Joash. Joash was prevented from falling into his grandmother's lethal hands um, by the dead king's sister, uh, Ahaziah's sister, Jehoshabiot. She was the one who prevented Joash from being killed. And she did this by arranging to have him concealed in the temple. Presumably by uh, Jehoiada the high priest. Although the text doesn't actually say it was Jehoiada that she uh, turned him over to. Uh, but anyway, he was concealed by the priests uh, and the high priest in the temple. He remained there, hidden for six over six years. Well, uh, Athaliah reigned over the land. Well, eventually, Jehoiada, who was a godly man, the high priest, chief priest, orchestrates a successful coup against Athaliah, overthrowing this Jezebel uh, deviv- uh, redivivus, that's a fancy word for uh, made in the image of, uh, of Jezebel, overthrows her, and places a royal descendant of David, young Joash, on the throne. Now Joash is about seven years old at this point. And Joash is the one that we're looking at today. So, three things about Joash. First, we're going to see King Joash's covenant keeping is summarized in the first portion of our text. Secondly, we're going to see King Joash's covenant keeping is manifested by good works. And finally, we are going to see King Joash's covenant keeping is temporally blessed. So this is about King Joash's covenant keeping. As you can tell from the Three points. So, first of all, it's summarized for us. Uh, This occurs, as is often the case, usually the case, on the part of the chronicler. He he gives an assessment of the reign of whatever king of Judah he's talking about. And so that assessment comes, that summary comes in verse 2. And Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Meaning that he was at least outwardly uh, faithful to God and to his covenant. He was more or less, in other words, fulfilling all the duties and responsibilities that he had as Judah's king under the Davidic covenant, which was an administration of the one covenant of grace. Um, And he was doing his job. He was being a good king. He was serving the Lord, Um, uh, at least outwardly. He was doing so, um, and. By the way, it does say, you notice I didn't finish reading the verse, it also indicates the time period during which Joash was outwardly, at least covenantally, faithful. I'll read it again. And Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada, the priest. He exhibited this fidelity all during that period that Jehoiada was the chief priest, as we learn in verse 6, um, over the land, over the at the temple. Now, why does the chronicler mention the high priest Jehoiada here, in verse 2, in the summary that he gives of Joash's reign? Well, because the time interval is important. He was faithful. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord during this time period meaning the reign of uh, Jehoiada as high priest, uh, and only during that time frame. So you need to remember, um, Well, we need to back up here. So why bring Jehoiada up? Well, it has to do with the time period of when he was faithful, but it also has to do with the fact that Jehoiada played a crucial role in this first portion of Joash's reign. You need to remember that Joash became king of Judah when he was only seven years old, as I mentioned a few moments ago. At seven, he was too young to rule over his kingdom without a great deal of advice and assistance uh, and even action on the part of some adult or adults in his life. Well, it is quite clear from the chronicler's representation of Jehoiada in this text before us that Jehoiada was that adult that who provided uh assistance and counsel and direction and influence upon the young king Jehoi- Joash, uh jo- Jehoiada rather was Joash's foremost counselor and helper and was the adult who assisted him in making the decisions that needed to be made as king and in ruling over the land. The word, by the way, that has historically been used to describe someone filling this important role that Jehoiada filled for Joash is uh, Jehoiada was the regent of the king, of the young king. And that is, in fact, what Jehoiada was. He was a godly regent serving Joash who was too young to govern all by himself because of his lack of experience and wisdom. So Jehoiada exerted uh, a consistently, it appears, from what he's, we read here, and uh, we can glean also from uh, 2 Kings, the other account of, of Joash's reign, Jehoiada exerted cons- consistently positive influence, godly influence, in this young king's life while he was Jehoiada's ward and it is quite clear, uh, perfectly clear, actually, from what both the chronicler and the author of Kings write, that when Joash, the king, was doing what was right in the sight of the Lord, as we see uh, that, I'm quoting there from verse 2, when he was doing this, he was behaving this way, doing what was right, on account of the godly influence and counsel of the high priest, his chief counselor. But, As we will learn from the chronicler's description of the latter portion of Joash's reign, the king's fidelity to Yahweh and to his covenant ended as soon as Jehoiada's influence went away as a result of his demise, uh, having died. That's why his influence goes away. He dies while Joash is still reigning. What do we learn from this? <clears throat> well, first of all, you need to know um, that, and I've said this many times before, but it's important to keep in mind because we want to keep our covenant theology in line uh, and have the right categories in our view, uh, all true Christians, and I'm not just saying professing Christians, but Christians, prof- professing Christians whose profession is accurate. That's what a true Christian is. All true Christians can be appropriately described uh, as keepers of God's gracious covenant, the covenant of grace. That's what I'm referring to here, and we're in the New Testament. Uh, administration of that one covenant of grace. So we can say we're keepers of the new t- covenant, keepers of the covenant of grace, covenant keepers however you want to do it. But that's the way a true Christian can and should be described uh, at times. And so we're doing that now. Covenant keeping is always, this is another thing that we learn from this text, and we're going to see more about it here uh, in the next couple of points, but it is always evidenced by an effort to keep God's commands to do what is right in the sight of the Lord. But as we'll see next week, that effort has to be an ongoing, perpetual effort. Uh, one must persevere in that effort. Hint as to what we're going to be talking about next time we're in uh, Second Chronicles, the latter part of chapter 24. But anyway, covenant-keeping always has evidence accompanying it. Maybe not uh, blindingly obvious evidence all the time, but at least uh, some degree of evidence in the form of a desire, a striving after, although uh, maybe very imperfectly, obedience uh, uh, to God, fidelity to the Lord, doing what is right in the sight of the Lord. Does that describe your life? Does that describe you? Think about it. Does it really describe you, if you are a professing Christian? A person can produce evidence of being a believer. Evidence of being a believer. He or she can produce such apparent apparent evidence of being a believer, I should say, for a considerable period of time. Without actually being a true born again believer. And we have a person in front of us in this chapter that is not a true born again believer, and his name is Joash. But we are looking at his covenant keeping phase, if we can put it that way. When he was at least outwardly, that's why I keep using the word outwardly as opposed to inwardly, keeping covenant. But he doesn't persevere in that to the end of his days, which all true believers will. That's why I say he's not a true believer. But, let's return to Joash's good years, the first portion of his reign, which we don't know how long it was. That brings me to the second point, by the way. So the first point is, we we looked at Joash's covenant keeping is summarized. Uh, now we see covenant uh, Joash's covenant keeping is manifested. There is evidence, if you will, which uh, uh, and the evidence begins in verse four, and that is, I'll read it for you. He begins; he makes the decision to repair Jerusalem's temple, and it came about. Now, it came about after this that Joash decided to restore the house of the Lord, which, as verse seven, which I won't bother to read, indicates had been broken into and badly damaged during Athaliah's illegitimate six-year rule over the southern kingdom. She let the temple fall apart and let it be looted and and abused and desecrated. Because, of course, she's Athaliah. uh, And worships Baal, not Yahweh. So she doesn't care. So... uh, the temple is torn down, and not torn down, it is run down, is, uh, has been desecrated, has been abused, has been damaged, um, and Joash wants to fix this problem. Now, neither the 2nd Kings account, which is 2nd Kings 12, or the Chronicler's account that we have before us here tell us exactly when Joash, the king, first expressed his intention to undertake the restoration of the temple. We don't know when this uh, idea came into his head and this plan began to be implemented by him. Uh, but a reasonable guess, in terms of the time period, is that when he was a teenager, not when he was seven or eight, but after he had matured considerably, uh, but was still quite young. You figure that out by looking at something that's written over in 2 Kings chapter 12, but we won't go there. and I won't bother to bring that up. But the point is he was probably... A teenager, maybe in his early 20s. He wasn't in his 35 or 40. He was younger. Okay? Still during this uh, faithful portion. And this is an exhibition of his evidence of his uh, outward fidelity to God. He wants to repair repair God's house. Uh, Anyway, his this desire to repair God's house for the Lord... um, to undertake this task was a noble desire. And undoubtedly, at least in some sense, a God-pleasing inclination on Joash's part. The Lord would have been pleased and was pleased to see his house, where he dwelled above the ark, repaired. And Joash... Wanted to initiate this. And that was a good thing, is my point. And God was at least pleased with the fact that the temple was being repaired. Perhaps not with the heart of Joash and the motives behind this, uh, the effort, but uh, because, again, he was ultimately not a believer at that point. But he was outwardly, at least, manifesting uh, Christian faithfulness, excuse me, believing faithfulness. There we go. I was. Jewish faithfulness. This is before the cross. <clears throat> so he decides I'm going to do this and Joash then gives orders concerning the collection of the funds that would be needed to undertake this task. Now we learn from the second King's account, chapter 12 verses 4 and five, um, that Joash proposes three different sources of revenue to help pay for the temple's repair. The first source that, we're not going to take the time to go there, but just trust me on this. The first source, uh, uh, that he suggests is monies collected from God's covenant people as a result of biblical vows that they had taken that involved bringing some, something to the Lord after the vow was fulfilled. So those monies, whatever they were, Joash says, let's use those funds. Okay, that's the first thing he proposes over in, um, by the way, the example of biblical vows uh, uh, is found in Leviticus 27 that, that in, would involve payment of money or goods uh, to the temple or to God. A second source of revenue, revenue that he provo- proposes is free will offerings, that is, voluntary contributions on the part of God's people after notifying them that we're going to repair the temple. Please uh, consider giving it a, a, a donation, what we would call a donation, a free will offering. That's the second source uh, that he proposes over in 2 Kings, we read of. And the third source uh, that he proposes is the half-shekel tax which God had imposed back in Exodus chapter 30, the half-shekel tax that God had imposed on 20-year-old Jewish men, males, young males, uh, which was to be given by them to be used to pay for temple-related, or back then it was tabernacle-related, Expenses, including uh, paying for the those who were doing the serving, the priests and the Levites, and in the in the tabernacle. So Joash proposes three, these three different sources over in Second Kings, but here in Chronicles, the only one that is mentioned by the chronicler is the last one, which is called often called the temple tax, or the it was it used to be the tabernacle tax, which became the temple tax, the half shekel. Uh, 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 levied again uh, on twenty-year-old uh, males once they turn twenty. Okay, so he makes this prop a proposal uh, that there be three sources, and then, <clears throat> but here's the thing: both historical precedents and the fact that King Joash himself is the one who initiates this plan to restore the temple, both those things, those, those precedent and the fact that Joash is the initiator of this undertaking, would have led the priests and the Levites to expect the king himself to be responsible for covering the costs of this major project. The king's, this is the king's idea. Surely the king is going to pay for this out of the royal treasury, Right? That's what the the temple staff, if we can call the priests and the Levites that, would have undoubtedly thought. However, contrary to their probable expectation that the king was going to pay for all this, Joash gives orders to have the restoration work paid for not from his royal coffers, but rather by reallocating income which had traditionally gone toward the maintenance of the temple's priests and Levites, income generated from the temple tax, that that they should use that income generated by the temple tax to pay for the temple's refurbishment. Needless to say, the priests and the Levites, who have a stake in this whole thing, Aren't particularly fond of this idea that monies that they had been receiving to support them and their work in the temple, that that money should now be redirected. Oh, and that by the way, and this this is adding insult to injury, that they, the priests and the Levites, should be the ones who be responsible for collecting the increased temple tax, which apparently wasn't being very faithfully. Um, collected or given by the people of the kingdom at that point, this is an effort you see to uh, to once again get on top of the collections of the temple tax, which more money would be coming in at that point to pay for this project. But you had to you had to you know shake the tree as it were to get get the money out of the people's pockets. And and Joash says, "Why don't you Levite?" He doesn't say, "Why don't you?" He says, "You go." into the countryside, and you get the people to pay the tax faithfully. And you can imagine why they'd be a little irritated by this. And they are, as is evidenced by what I'm going to tell you next. And that is, the way they respond to the young king's orders is they simply ignore them. Verse 5 tells us, well, let me read all of verse 5 because it's it's interesting. He gathered the priests and Levites and said to them, You, go out to the cities of Judah. Go across the kingdom, in other words. And collect money from all Israel to repair the house of your God. Okay, now he's your God. Annually. And you shall do the matter quickly. You need to be quick about this, you priests and Levites. And that's the end of the quote. And then we read at the end of verse 5, But the Levites did not act quickly. The chronicler is understating what actually happened when he says they did not act quickly. If you read the King's account of this event, uh, the writer of Second Kings makes it clear that the delay on the part of the priests and the Levites in implementing Joash's order was years long in duration, perhaps 23 years, in fact, although we can't quite prove that. But because of what happens over in Second Kings and what's mentioned over there, it might have been as many as 23 years. Clearly, it was a long time when nothing, essentially, was done to collect this tax. Fast forward during that period, period of uh, nothing being done or little to nothing being done that extended period of however many years it was now the now adult king joash finally loses his patience with th- this i gave these orders and they are not being implemented and i gave them a long time ago so he is loses his patience so he summons jehoiada the high priest who is in charge of all the temple staff to scold him for his failure to compel those Levites and those priests to carry out his royal decree. After all, I'm the king. That's probably how the conversation went. Something like that. Verse 6. He's bellyaching. And he says, Why why have you, Jehoiada, why have you not required the Levites to bring in from Judah and from Jerusalem the levy fixed by Moses, the servant of the Lord, on the congregation of Israel for the tent of... the." The testimony, and he implied, is which I commanded you to do. Why? What, what's 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 going on here? Well, we read between the lines, but there was discussion that took place. I would actually use the term negotiations after the king settled down a little bit. After Jeho- they kind of said, "King, good king," you know, let's talk. So after some kind of discussions that uh, apparently took place, uh, or did take place, Joash, King Joash and High Priest Jehoiada, apparently reached a compromise. Um, And evidence of this compromise starts in verse 8 of our text, but I'll get to that in a minute. Basically what the compromise appears to have been is Joash abandons his original plan, which had Uh, was to send the priests and Levites throughout Judah to collect the temple tax from everyone, not just uh, the occasional person who uh, did his duty, even though he wasn't pressed to do so, Uh, but from everyone. He abandons that plan. It's quite evidence that he does so. And then what he does is he issues new orders. And those orders are that a collection box should be placed near one of the temple precinct's uh, entrances or gates, and that a proclamation should be made across the kingdom regarding the use of that box, which is now sitting in the temple courtyard near one of the gates, and also near an altar—not the the great altar, but another altar that was uh, in the courtyard. We learn about that again in Second Kings twelve. But so he says, put a box there, and then make this proclamation. Let's. Uh, um, Let's read that. It's verses 8 and 9. So the king commanded. uh, This is a new plan. And they made a chest and set it outside the gate, outside by the gate of the house of the Lord. And they made a proclamation in Judah and Jerusalem to bring to the Lord the levy, here it is, fixed by Moses, the servant of of God, on Israel in the wilderness, recorded again in Exodus 30. And then we read in verse 10, And all the officers and all the people, all the people rejoiced, and brought in their levies and dropped them into the chest until they had finished. Just a little note here. Uh, this is one of Israel's better moments. Judah's, I should say, better moments. And notice this, cheerful giving. It's not a regular habit of God's people in the Old Testament, but it happened here, and it's the right example, and it's an example to us, Uh, this is not a sermon on tithing. But my point is, whatever you do give, you should give cheerfully and willingly because the Lord has given it to you and it doesn't really belong to you anyway. It belongs to him. And he just says, uh, give me back a tenth uh, plus free will offerings uh, um, as well. And we're to do that joyfully, willingly, not begrudgingly. So, these people do this um, and, uh, this is the new plan, Plan B, and Joseph, uh, Joe, uh, uh, Joash, there we go, this second attempt, uh, to collect the needed funds to undertake the temple's restoration is successful. Uh, I'll keep reading after, uh, verse 10, it says in verse 11, uh, So they rejoiced, verse 10, dropped into the chest until it was finished. Verse 11, And it came about whenever the chest was brought in to the king's officer by the Levites. And when they saw that there was much money, then the king's scribe and the chief priest's officer would come, empty the chest, take it, and return it to its place. Thus they did daily and collected much money. And all that money, of course, was uh, or a good share of it anyway, was directed towards, uh, but probably not all of it, uh, towards the temple's refurbishment. It's given to masons and so on, as we read a little bit later in verse uh, thirteen. Um, so, what do we do with this? What, 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 what does the fact that Joash's covenant keeping manifested itself in his behavior here? Uh, what does that teach us? What do we learn? today just a couple things. Well, one thing really in particular, and that is that a credible profession of faith requires the production of good fruit.